This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends and technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at the art of deal-making. Why knowing the nuts and bolts of wheeling and dealing is an important skill for anyone in the business world today. Why you should ask yourself, so what, every time you feel stuck. And how you can use a motivation mosaic to understand all the different angles that may eventually impact whether or not a deal gets made. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Jeff B. Cohen, author of the recently released book, The Dealmaker's Ten Commandments, 10 Essential Tools for Business Forged in the Trenches of Hollywood. Jeff is a co-founder and partner at Cohen Gardner LLP, a Los Angeles-based entertainment law firm. He's been named a Variety's Dealmaker's Impact List and its Legal Impact List And he has written numerous articles on topics including business, technology, and entertainment matters for CNBC, The Huffington Post, Backstage, Lawyerist, and others. Jeff got an introduction to Hollywood deal-making as a child actor, having starred in the 80s classic Goonies as a character we all know and love, Chunk. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you, Will. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. So let's kick things off today talking about the book since it will set the stage for the rest of the episode. What (laughs) What prompted you to write the book and how has the reception been so far? Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, the book has been, uh, you know, well-received. Um, the American Bar Association had done a profile of me and my, my uh, entertainment law practice, and they came at me to uh, – they asked me to pitch them on an idea for a book about entertainment law. Um, I'm a big fan of business books, so I kind of opened it up and was like, well, what, what if we made a, a, a book about kind of negotiating deals, managing your time, handling crisis, and uh, kind of put all the info that I've learned over the past, you know, couple decades and made the dealmaker's 10 commandments. Nice. So you live in a world where you represent your clients' interests and get the best deals for them possible. So obviously dealmaking is important for you as a lawyer. Sure. Do you think that understanding how to make deals can be just as important for people in other walks of life as well? Well, for me, kind of the big idea of the book is that success is life on your own terms. And the book has exercises for the reader to help discover what those terms are. And then I want to teach the reader how to actually go out and get those terms. So the truth of it is, as business people, we're always making deals with our bosses, with our subordinates, with our competitors, with our collaborators. So in a a way, it's about deals. And also in a way, it's about relationships in business. Okay, nice. And one thing that you read about in the book is how Machiavelli's The Prince had a big influence on you when your acting career was coming to an end. For sure. What did The Prince teach you about the necessity of adaptability, and what do you think listeners can learn from that? Sure. Um, The... It's interesting. The, before I get into the Ten Commandments uh, in the book, I have like a little uh, chapter called Chunk Meets Machiavelli. Uh, I was a kid actor and I was in a film called The Goonies and I, and I played this character of Chunk and I worked and everything was cool and I was a little fat kid. But then when I hit puberty, it was a career ender, right? I couldn't get work anymore and I was, you know, bummed. Uh, so 
what I kind of ran across at that point in my life in high school was this book called The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. And, you know, he is a political philosopher, wrote in the early 1500s and early Renaissance Italy. And he, he has this advice book called The Prince. And what he had said in the book, which for me was a, you know, revelation, was that it's better to be feared than loved. Because people fear you because they have to and they love you because they want to. And if you're building something, you have to have control. And fear is the proper and effective mechanism to obtain that control. So for me, as kind of a failed actor, you know, where an actor kind of the, the exercise is you want the audience to love you and that's the appropriate role of an actor. Uh, but when, when the audience didn't love me anymore, I had to figure something out. So for me, fortunately, the prince came along and kind of starting with that, uh, which is actually the dealmaker's first commandment. It is better to be feared than loved. Uh, I was able to kind of, you know, build my little entertainment empire. And and that's the first commandment. Do you think it's also the most powerful? Well, the way I've structured the book is that there's ten commandments, and then within each, you know, each of the commandments, there's a question for self mastery. Uh, so it's a question that the reader should ask themselves uh, to kind of gain, you know, self knowledge and, and wisdom. Because I think you can only really get wisdom uh, through self knowledge. Um, but I think all the Ten Commandments build on each other. And the big idea is it's kind of the foundation and the how to of negotiating great deals, managing your time, handling crisis at the highest level without losing your soul. So uh, I think that they're they're really kind of all important. You know. Sure. So what are some of the other commandments that you list throughout the book? Well, I would say I'll just go to commandment two, which is power leads, reason follows. Uh, in any negotiation, in any business uh, relationship or transaction, we're always taught that what's ever reasonable, whatever makes sense, that's how things turn out, but that's nonsense. What actually happens is power leads, then reason follows. Whoever controls... Uh, you know, has the most power in that negotiation will be able to bend the deal to get what they want. And then after they get what they want, there's something that's created, which I call a narrative of power, which is basically the powerful side making up a story about, oh, here's why I got everything I wanted, and here's why you got screwed, and here's why it's good for everybody. So for me, the idea is that power is kind of the freight train, and then reason is the little caboose that, that follows behind. And you write in the book about two words that you think are eminently powerful and empowering. So what? So where did you first hear about the power of those two words? Sure. Um, basically, in the, the question for self-mastery under the first commandment, which is it is better to be feared than love, uh, that question for self-mastery that I want the reader to ask themselves is, so what? Because that chapter deals with fear and your opponents are going to be trying to make you afraid, uh, you know, it's really important to look inside and say, okay, what frightens me? In the book, I kind of – for me, I have all these kind of really, I think, interesting intellects and I put them all together in one pot, uh, you know, from Napoleon to uh, Bernie Brillstein to Lou Wasserman to David Geffen, you know, uh, to Frederick Nietzsche to Nicola Machiavelli. And in this case, it's, a it's actually Andy Warhol. 
Andy Warhol, you know, basically had a really troubled upbringing. He was ill. Um, you know, he grew up in, in kind of a blue collar town, uh, you know, in the, in the Midwest and just totally was, was an outsider, totally didn't fit in um, and was really self-conscious. And there's this beautiful quote that I used from him which, in the book, which is basically he found that his mechanism of dealing with fear – of being afraid that his crushes would reject him or people would reject his artwork or he would be rejected socially or that he would fail is he would ask himself, so what? He'd say, okay, so if I like this person and they don't like me back, so what? Okay, you know, if this is my new piece of art and people don't like it, so what? And if you can internalize that and begin to develop a value system based upon what you care about versus what you know, kind of the, you know, uh, the strangers of the audience care about, you can really build something strong that comports with what you really care about. Sure. And one of the things that you write about in the, write about in the book is what you call a motivation mosaic. What is a motivation mosaic and what are its components? What are its component parts? Sure. Um, that's from, uh, Dealmaker's Commandment 3, uh, which is everyone is on the same side their own. Everyone, everyone's doing what's in their own perceived best self-interest. So that's basically the motivation mosaic is a real-time three-dimensional map of the battle. So when you're analyzing a transaction, when you're analyzing a business venture, when you're in the middle of that fight, you have to be able to look at the battlefield. Just like in an old war movie when you see a bunch of generals standing around a table with a model of the battlefield where they're pushing around their troops and pushing around the other side's troops. And I use a quote from that section – in that section from Napoleon. uh, And basically what Napoleon says is that battle is chaos – And the winner of the battle is the person who can manage their own chaos and shape the chaos of their opponent. So when analyzing this chaotic situation, you create this motivation mosaic. And that's basically looking at the opposing side, seeing what the opposing side wants and is afraid of as a whole, and then what all of the component parts want and afraid of. And then you look at your own side, the guys next to you. Uh, you know, who hopefully won't, uh, you know, just make sure nobody's, you know, got a dagger ready for your own back. You have to be, watch out for that. But you kind of look at your own side and say, okay, what does my side as a whole want? What do all the component parts want individually? And you kind of put that together to create this, you know, real-time 3D map of the battle, which is the motivation mosaic. And you write about people with two types of mentalities, the scarcity mentality and the abundance mentality. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two and which one you think is preferable for deal makers? Sure. Um, there, there's a part of the book where I deal with status threats because I think status threats are so important to human interaction on the business front uh, and are, is something that is really not dealt with. There's this idea that when, you, when your status is threatened – when you go to the game and you see your ex-wife uh, and her new husband has better seats than you do, uh, you know, uh, when your competitor uh, just got a, a new, a uh, better car than you or a bigger house, they've done experiments and actually the brain registers threats to your status as pain, very similar to physical pain. So status threats are real. The question is why do we have them? Um, some scientists have theorized that we've evolved this you know, painful response when our status is threatened uh, from the caveman days in the sense of if you were in the old caveman village and your status was low, you might die. Uh, if the hunt comes up short, 
the good hunters, they're going to eat. The fertile females, they're going to eat. Uh, you know, the old mystic who can speak to the gods, you know, you know, he or she is going to eat. But if you're the weakling and your status is low in the village and they're, you know, short on, uh, you know, on uh, woolly mammoth, you're out. You know, you might die. So humans have developed this mechanism where status is very important. And you can even actually, uh, you know, take it to, you know, how many meetings or, you know, or dinners or drinks have we been at where you just listen to all the parties bragging about, you know, uh, where they're sending their, you know, their kids to school, where they went on vacation, this accolade, that accolade, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what I suggest in the book is to kind of understand that that exists uh, and then separate yourself from it. Uh, because it's just a tremendous, very human waste of energy. And kind of the next step on that is asking yourself, do I have an abundance or scarcity mentality? If, if you're really overwhelmed with status threats, you may have a scarcity mentality, meaning that, oh, if my competitor got this piece of business, then it's one less piece of business for me to get. Ah, there's less money out there, et cetera, et cetera. The other way to see that same set of facts is through an abundance mentality. If your competitor gets a, a you know kind of good piece of business, you can say, "Wow, you know, there's a lot of action in in digital content. I want to get into digital content." Uh, so it's kind of a uh, just kind of a world view, and if you can switch your view uh, from scarcity mentality to abundance mentality. Uh, you know, you just see a lot more opportunities and are less tormented by status threats, which are a huge waste of time and energy. Yeah, I love the uh, the section of the book where you where you talk about eliminating envy and putting on your blinders, which yeah. which they do to racehorses so that they can focus on what's ahead of them, but not what's around them necessarily. Yeah, thank you. There's one of the dealmakers' commandments. Uh, commandments four is uh, things are precisely as they seem. And it sounds beyond obvious, but it's really fundamentally important. Things are precisely as they seem. When you walk in and uh, see your friend in bed with your wife and he says, this isn't what it looks like, it's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> um, the, we're always afraid in a negotiation or business that, oh, the other, the other side is going to try to deceive us. The other side is going to try to trick us. But there are a lot of mechanisms to protect against that. And when someone's trying to lie to us, you know, our spider sense goes up. Things seem a little weird. Um, and if you have a good lawyer like me, you know, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a lot of contractual mechanisms to make sure the other side isn't pulling the wool over your eyes. The real danger is lying to yourself. Uh, and in that section, I start with uh, this idea of Occam's razor, which is that basically, uh, in layman's terms, the simplest explanation is the best explanation. And part of Dealmaker's Commandment 4, things are precisely as they seem, is I take the reader through the exercise of shaving away everything that impairs their judgment. So you have to shave away envy. You have to shave away lust. You have to shave away anger. Uh, you know, you have to shave away desire. And what you're left with is the truth. And the truth may be ugly. The truth may be great. The truth may be terrible. But, you know, knowledge is power. Uh, but if you're not, you know, if you don't, add, you know, if you don't accurately take in that knowledge, then you lose your power. So it's about the exercise of shaving away all the nonsense, seeing things for precisely how they are, so you can make the best decisions. And and commandment number five is no pig wrestling. Uh, so That's as, right. as a native of the great state of North Carolina, where we have fantastic barbecue, tell us what you mean by no pig wrestling. <laughs> well. 
no pig wrestling is commandment dealmaker's commandment five the idea the saying uh is never wrestle a pig because you get dirty and the pig enjoys it the idea of commandment five is that combat is honor if you're a ceo you do not negotiate against an intern if you're a major league uh you know baseball team you don't play against the little leagues if you're the you know the heavyweight champ you, you don't fight an unranked opponent Unless you're Apollo Creed when he fought Rocky and we saw how that turned out poorly. You know, <laughs> it did not turn out well for Apollo ultimately. Um, so the big idea of, of Dealmaker's Commandment 5, no pig wrestling, is that you, know, you are judged by the strength of your enemies. You have to be very careful in choosing who your opponents are and then which battles you are fighting with these specific opponents. Um, sometimes combat is thrust upon us and we do not have a choice. In that case, I have certain you know, mechanisms and tactics that the, that the reader can use to shape their opponent and shape the conditions for victory uh, through something I call the GAT analysis, which is gun, armo, uh, I'm sorry, gun ammo target analysis of the transaction or the business relationship, which is something I go into in the book. Nice and, and yes, that's followed by a quote from uh, from Jay Z. If if I'm correct on the song, I think it's from Heart of the City. I'm not. Yeah. Looking, I'm not looking at you, dudes. I'm looking past you. That is an impressive pull, my man. Will, very <laughs> impressive. That is. Uh, yeah, it's Heart of the City. <laughs> uh, you know. Nicely, nicely played, sir. Nicely played. Yeah, it's Jay Z. I'm not looking at you, dudes. I'm looking past you, uh, because you know, comp almost nothing as a human being uh, or just in our world is more – takes more resources than a fight. Nothing's more expensive or brutal than war. Uh, you know, nothing is more destructive uh, you know, you know, in a business context as well. So combat is necessary. It's important. But you really you – know, as, a, as, a, as a capitalist, you have, you have to you – know, the art of capitalism, of course, is managing your resources and putting your resources into a, a losing battle – uh, is a waste. You know, as Genghis Khan uh, said, only a fool fights a battle he knows he cannot win. Um, so it's really about, you know, choosing your opponent, choosing your battle. And yeah, one of our most precious resources in life is time. So you write about a book called How to Get Control of Your Time in Life that literally changed your life shortly after you started your law firm. What's the one question in the book that helped you get a handle on things when they were seemingly spinning out of control? Yeah, thank you. The uh, in the book, I also write about, uh, you know, as you said, I write about uh, time management. And I think especially now, there are so many pulls on our time, you know, from social media to our email to, you know, obligations at work to obligations at home. Having a quiet moment where you can actually process information and actually do work is so hard to find. I read this book called How to Take Control of Your Time and Life Now by Alan Lakin. And it's an older book. Uh, it's from the late 60s, but it's just great. And I referenced the book in my book. And basically what he says then, and it holds up now, I think even more so, is that when you are overwhelmed, when there is, you know, you have this maelstrom of responsibilities and, you know, everyone, you know, bugging you for your time, uh, you have to just breathe and ask yourself the question, what is the best use of my time right now? So forget about the macro. Just get very micro. At this precise instant, you know, regardless of, of everyone you know, tugging, uh, you know, tugging me here, pulling me there, what is the best use of my time right now? 
And I think that's the question that allows you to kind of cut through all the nonsense and focus on really best utilizing your time, which is your most important resource. Yeah. And on the, on the macro level too, you write in the book about how I think in that book, he tells you to basically list out all your goals and then you, you choose a one, a two, a three. And if something doesn't have, isn't tied to one of those top level goals, you basically just don't do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting. I first read about that book in another book. It was in, it was in Bill Clinton's uh, autobiography. And he, he actually wrote how when he, was a, when he was a young man, he read this book and how it changed his life. And I was like, well, I mean, he's done so much. If, if, if this book really helped him, I want to give it a shot. And uh, you know, the author, Alan Lakin, basically is like, you know, ha- has various exercises, which I actually you know, report some of in the book, of how to figure out what you really want, what really matters to you. And there's that idea, that quote from you know, Herbert Baird's Swope, I don't know the secret of success, but I know the secret of failure, trying to make everyone else happy. And a through line through my book is you really need to figure out what you want, what matters to you. Uh, otherwise, when you reach your goals, you'll find out they weren't actually your goals to begin with. Yeah, the uh, the section of, of that chapter that resonated most with me was don't take someone's monkey, right? Because we all want to be <laughs> helpful and, you know, and, and kind, good people. And when people come to us with requests, help them fulfill them. But that doesn't necessarily mean saying yes to everything that gets dumped onto your desk. Absolutely. And it's funny, I actually stole that and I, I give them credit for it um, in, in the, <clears throat> I believe it's the, uh, is it the five minute manager? The, yeah, the, the one-minute manager. Oh, I'm sorry. If, if, so I'm, sorry. if I'm reading the footnotes yep. right, no, yep. No, you got it. Thank you. Sorry about that. Yeah, the one-minute manager. And it was this really interesting analogy, which is that you're at your office, you're at your desk, you're trying to care, take care of your work, and then your coworker or your collaborator comes in and basically they have a monkey on their shoulder, which is some annoying, unprofitable problem, and there's nothing more people love to do than come in your office – take that monkey off their, <laughs> off their shoulder and just put it right on yours and then they leave and you're trapped with this monkey. Uh, so you really have to be mindful and careful of when you're taking on an obligation, when you're taking on a problem or a challenge, you know, is it yours? Do you need to take it on? And, uh, you know, if so, are you being adequately compensated for doing so? Because otherwise people just throw monkeys on you and you can't do anything. Yeah. So in the book, there are 10 commandments. We've gone through, I think, the first five and don't want to give them all away. Obviously, want to give people a reason to go out and buy the book. Yes, but I agree. <laughs> and so I know it's not nice to play favorites, but if you had to choose one as your favorite or the most important, which one would it be? Well, it's hard for me to say, like, it's hard for me to, to say, you know, which one is the most important. Right, because or else I, you would have just made that the book. Yeah, I mean, because I, I do, you know... I think they're all important. I would say one that's really been helpful for me, um, and I think could be you know uniquely helpful to the you know to the readers um, is uh, there's one chapter uh, which I believe is Commandment Eight, which is about crisis management. And Dealmaker's Commandment Eight is don't panic, stop the bleeding, don't compound the error. The idea being that when you are in a high-stress situation and everything's going to hell, and if you're trying anything challenging, eventually things will go to hell. You know, that's part of the gig. In these high-stress situations, you're either going to revert to your training or your instinct. And usually your instinct will get you killed. Usually your instinct will be to bolt or to lash out at the first person next to you and will just make things worse. Uh, and And I start that chapter off with a quote by the Navy SEALs, which is, the more you 
sweat, uh, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in combat. And don't panic, stop the bleeding, don't compound the error is the methodology that I've created when everything goes to hell uh, to kind of replace my instinct and to, to take a bad situation, stop it from getting worse, and then fixing it. So I think don't panic, stop the bleeding, don't compound the error is uh, really important. Okay, nice. And there, there are also tons of great quotes sprinkled throughout the book. Do you have one or two favorites in particular that, uh, that really resonate with you? Well, yeah, I mean, it, kind of the methodology throughout the book, I do, I have quotes from, you know, I have quotes from, from everybody because I think that quotes are a really great way, you know, whether it's Jay-Z, as you've astutely uh, called, was in uh, Heart of the City, uh, or, you know, or Napoleon, I think it's a great, you know, time efficient way to, uh, you know, to kind of convey a lot of information. Mm -hmm. um, I think one that I really like is one from Theodore Roosevelt, which is uh, comparison is the thief of joy. And that kind of goes to the status threat idea. Comparison is the thief of joy. I think if, you know, and there's exercises in the book, if the reader can kind of move beyond status threats, they can be, I think, happier and much more successful and really kind of, you know, figure out what is the success that is life on your own terms when you kind of move past that comparison of others, that impulsive, you know, comparison of yourself to others and status threats. So one of the last tips that you give in the book, Jeff, is on internal communication and kind of quieting the voices that we all have in our own head. And I got a huge kick out of it. Can you talk a little bit about how you used to handle dates and how that changed over time? Yeah, sure. I talk about, uh, you know, basically, and that's in the chapter that deals with, uh, you know, crisis management, because I think a big, you know, or, or, or a common, you know, theme of why everything went to hell is insufficient communication. Um, and I kind of use the analogy of like, you know, <laughs> you know, when I, when I would go out on dates, I get nervous and I would just say dumb stuff, you know, just like try to make conversation. Hey, clowns. Uh, hey, clowns. What do you think of clowns? Huh? Clowns. <laughs> You know, and, and I, I found that to be an ineffective methodology. Uh, so, so I basically learned about the power of listening. And I think as a dealmaker, as a capitalist, uh, the ability to listen and really hear what your side is telling you, what the opposing side is telling you is, you know, it's beyond obvious that that needs to be an important, uh, you know, use of your time, but it's really hard to do. People love to talk. People love to talk, but people are, you know, being a great listener is really, uh, uh, you know, more rare than you'd think. But if you really, if you enjoy knowledge, if you enjoy learning about the human condition or about just the facts on the ground, then you have to be a good listener. Uh, so, uh, as simple as it seems, being a really great listener shows the opposing party that you're, you know, that you're considering their position. It shows your own party that you care about uh, their take on the situation, that you care about them uh, as a person. That's a really basic and fundamentally important, uh, you know, technique. I think to being a good deal maker. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the the quote that starts off that internal communication tip is. A gossip is one who talks to you about others. A bore is one who talks to you about himself. And a brilliant conversationalist is one who talks to you about yourself. And you could probably substitute a brilliant deal maker for a brilliant conversationalist, and that quote would still work. 
Absolutely. I think, I think like, you know, if you think of yourself, like if you're having a conversation with someone, uh, you know, if that person is really interested in what you're doing and genuinely, you know, uh, you know, is excited to hear about your life and kind of your business and what's going on, you're going to leave that interaction kind of liking that person <laughs> because as human beings, you know, listening is, is kind of a way that we show that we actually, you know, care about the other person. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Jeff, we're getting a little low on time. Any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there other than go out and buy the Dealmaker's Ten Commandments? It's funny. You, you nailed it because I was going to say go to Amazon.com, <laughs> buy the Dealmaker's Ten Commandments uh, hardcover, Kindle, or the audiobook where you can hear these beautiful voice, these beautiful tones uh, uh, throughout. Um, well, I would say uh, most important thing is, is – uh, by the Dealmaker's Ten Commandments. And I would say, secondly, you know, look, success is life on your own terms. So you really need to put in the work and discover what makes you happy because if you can't really get an, on, an honest answer there, you're not going to be your best self, you know, for, for others. Okay, nice. Well, great note to close on, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking with you about the art of dealmaking. Thank you so much. Well, have a great one. You too. If you'd like to learn more about The Dealmaker's Ten Commandments, you can visit the book's website at www.dealmakerscommandments.com. You can also visit Cohen Gardner's website at www.cohengardnerlaw.com. And you can become one of Jeff's close to 9,000 followers on Twitter at Jeff underscore B underscore Cohen. You can also take part in the conversation surrounding Jeff's book on Twitter using the hashtag Dealmakers10. That's the number 10. Thanks once again to Jeff Cohen for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to get lost in space. That's right. We'll be talking about innovation in the space industry with Andrea Bonetti and Mike Bierman of Sapienza. We'll talk about the future of space travel. If the next generation of innovation lies in the private industry or government space, and what has changed in the project management world in the space industry in the last 20 years. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.